A reading from Revelation 5, verses 1 through 7, page 16. <clears throat> and I saw upon the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and outside, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. And I began to really weep because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. So one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Look, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and its seven seals. And I saw in the midst of the throne and of the four living beings and in the midst of the elders a lamb standing as if slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he goes and takes it out of the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. Father, as we dig into this uh, scripture, we pray for your illumination, that you would help us to understand and to appreciate the incredible dimensions of the gospel, and Father, to live those out. Be with us as we continue to worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to be seeing that this uh, passage is an incredibly rich Christology. That's uh, a big uh, word for doctrine of Christ. But we're also going to be seeing that it uh, forms a part of John's argument, or what many people call apologetics, uh, against Judaism. Judaism as a system had rejected Jesus and was aggressively trying to insulate its constituents from even seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. So the Jews, many of them, were still looking forward to a future uh, Messiah, and they are to this day. And this passage forms a wonderful apologetic or witnessing tool for modern Jews. Now let me read you some sample quotes from modern Jewish scholars who state uh, what Judaism thinks about Jesus. Stephen Weiland says, the doctrine of Christ was and will remain alien to Jewish religious thought. John Rayner says, the point is this, that the whole Christology of the church, the whole complex of doctrines about the Son of God who died on the cross to save humanity from sin and death is incompatible with Judaism and indeed is in discontinuity with the Hebraism that preceded it. Now this little paragraph in chapter 5 is going to contradict that last statement and show that it's really Judaism that is in discontinuity uh, with the Old Testament. Jesus is the only one uh, who could take that scroll of the Old Testament. In John chapter 5, Jesus said, if you reject him, then really you've rejected the Old Testament because the Old Testament is uh, a document that speaks about him. In Matthew 15, Jesus said that the scribes and Pharisees had in effect made the Old Testament scriptures void. That means empty, empty of meaning with their man-made traditions and their doctrines. And in effect, Jesus was saying, you got a counterfeit religion that is alien to the Old Testament. Now, a lot of evangelicals are not aware about this. They're naive. They've never read the 
unabridged uh, Babylonian Talmud, and if they would read it, they would get angry because they would see that it over and over again blasphemes Jesus, promotes an, a gross immorality in their ethics, and um, in other ways is a, a contradiction uh, to the Old Testament. It's occultism really on a massive scale. It's a demonic collection of books. But most modern evangelicals are not aware of that. They think that Judaism, they follow the Old Testament. Christianity follows the New Testament. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. You could talk to just about any rabbi and they will admit that there are many contradictions between the Talmud and the Bible, and it's the Talmud that defines uh, Judaism, uh, not the Bible. Uh, last week, Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, said much the same thing, that it's the Babylonian Talmud that uh, is to be the law of the land. And any time that the Talmud contradicts the Bible, they have to follow the Talmud, okay? It's not even ethnicity that defines Judaism. A lot of people think it's ethnicity. It's not. Uh, in the official website that deals with Judaism basics, Arela Pelea says, no Jew accepts Jesus as the Messiah. Well, we have a Jew that would say otherwise, right, uh, in this congregation. No Jew accepts Jesus as the Messiah. When someone makes that faith commitment, they become a Christian. It is not possible for someone to be both Christian and Jewish. Well, John says the exact opposite in this book. He says that if you're following the Babylonian Talmud, you really can't call yourself a Jew because uh, true Jewishness, the true Israel, follows the Old Testament. And in Romans, uh, Revelation chapter 11, John likens Jerusalem of that day to Sodom and Egypt spiritually. He later on says that uh, Judaism is Babylon, Babylonian harlot. And they got a lot of their ideas from Babylon. Uh, it's called, that's why it's called the Babylonian Talmud. In Revelation 2, verse 9, he says that the Judaism of that day claims to be Jews, but it's a blasphemy to claim that they are Jews. They're really a synagogue of Satan. So the, the bottom line is, and I'm going to keep pounding this in through the book of Revelation, there is no Judeo-Christian consensus. That is a myth. There is no Judeo-Christian consensus. Christianity and Judaism have been at war just as much as Islam and Christianity have been at war. That has, is a myth that needs to be exploded. And with the approximately 1,000 references to the Old Testament in this book, the Apostle John is proving that if you reject Jesus and his kingdom, you are in denial of virtually every book of the Old Testament. It's a part of his apologetics. And in a very preliminary way, this is what John is doing in this chapter. Now, last week we saw that the scroll of verse 1 is the Old Testament canon. And with Ezekiel 2 through 3 and Daniel chapter 12 as the background there, I don't see how you can avoid that conclusion. We looked at a number of different theories on that, but we saw it's, it's pretty conclusively the Old Testament. And God holds out the scroll as a challenge to any Talmudist to take it and fulfill it. If Jesus is not the Messiah, who is? Who can take the scroll? Who fulfills the Old Testament? Who can judge all things in terms of the Old Testament? Who meets the Old Testament qualifications for the Messiah King? And then the angel gives the same challenge to any would-be contenders in verse 2. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? 
Well, there's silence on that question. Since ordinary men are sinners themselves, they are in no place to bring the judgments of the seals that really all men deserve. As Bass points out in his commentary, to open the books and judge others would condemn us to the same judgment unless we are united to Jesus. If we truly understood God's holiness and the judgments given in the Bible, well, that book would be a terror to us. It would be a terror to us apart from Jesus. So who is up to the challenge amongst the Jesus haters? No one. Verse 3 says, And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. Now last week I explained at least in part what it meant to open the scroll, but why could no one look at it? Obviously John has been looking at it. <laughs> he, he, he describes what it looks like. It's got seven seals on it. And yet it says no one could look at the scroll. So John sees it with his eyes, so did the 24 elders, so did the angels. So it's obviously a different kind of looking than just a casual noticing or seeing. And if you turn with me to Daniel chapter 7, we're going to uh, see what kind of looking, and it's a very technical kind of looking within a courtroom, uh, that we're going to be uh, seeing as the background to this. Now keep in mind that Revelation 4 through 5 is strongly tied to Daniel 7. Uh, in your outline, uh, top right corner, I've given an, an abbreviated chart of some of the key, um, the key parallels uh, where this is borrowing from Daniel 7. But let's start reading at Daniel 7 and verse 9. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. So it is uh, the opening of the courtroom of heaven and a covenant lawsuit is about to happen and the books or the smaller scrolls were open. Remember we saw last week there was a distinction between the big book of the canon and the smaller books of the individual books of the Bible. And just in case you doubt whether this is um, really talking about the books of the Bible, turn over to chapter 9 and verse 2. This is the only other place in the book of Daniel where the word books in the plural uh, is used, is mentioned. And last week we saw that Daniel's writing is called a scroll. So it's uh, one of many scrolls in, in, in the big scroll. But anyway, take a look at uh, Daniel 9 verse 2. It says, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of, uh, of Jerusalem. So there were a couple of books that predicted exactly 70 years of, of exile. So books, plural, refers to the books of the Bible. Now back to, back to Daniel 7. Why would each of the Old Testament books be opened in this courtroom? Well, it's because the Bible is the foundation for everything that is done in the courtroom of heaven. It gives the law, it gives the court, jurisprudence, the penalties, the qualifications for judges, the language of covenant lawsuits. Th those books constitute the basis on which all men will be judged. 
Now, prior to the time of Christ, and this is, this is where it gets interesting, prior to the time of Christ, God himself had brought those covenant lawsuits, but from the first century on, for the first time in human history, there was a transition of judgment from God, God bringing the judgment, to a man, the Messiah, bringing the judgment. As Jesus said in John 5, the Father has committed all judgment to the Son. And in verses 26 through 27 of that chapter, Jesus said that just as the Father had brought judgments, God has given the Son of Man, and commentators say that's a reference to the Daniel 7 Son of Man, God has given to the Son of Man the authority to execute all judgment. Okay, so Christ's life, his death, his burial, his ascension is a momentous, pivotal turning of history. The coming of the God-man marks the smooth transition from God bringing judgments to all nations to Jesus bringing judgments to all nations. So in chapter 6, when Jesus starts opening the scroll, breaking these seals, he's bringing judgments. And it starts even in his lifetime. We've already seen that he brought covenant lawsuits in the Gospels. So Jesus is taking over where the Father left off in the first century with Caesar Augustus. Okay, so we're going to be seeing that the first uh, horse rider uh, of those four horsemen is uh, Caesar uh, Augustus. And as prophesied in Daniel, the Father would begin bringing judgments against Caesar Augustus, but it also goes on to say that the Messiah, Jesus, uh, would begin bringing judgments against Caesar Augustus. So there's a perfect progression in these chapters. And verses 13 through 14 of Daniel 7 describe Christ's ascension to the right hand of the Father, being given all authority in heaven and on earth. Now, he provisionally had that in his lifetime, but his ascension's when he actually gets the throne. So take a look at verses 13 through 14. I was watching in the night visions... And behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. And I want you to notice that this happens at Christ's ascension not at his second coming. In this passage, he's coming on the clouds of heaven to where? To the Ancient of Days. He's not coming on the clouds of heaven from the Ancient of Days back to the earth. He's coming on the clouds of heaven to the Ancient of Days. It's clearly talking about his ascension. And so it's in 30 AD that he's given all judgment, all authority, all of planet earth. And so from this time on, a man does what he had only done as God before. Okay, a man has the authority to judge all things and to make all things new. And that is what is the background to Revelation 5, 1 through 7. Jesus takes the scroll that previously had only been in God's hand, at least as far as courtroom judgments. Now, there's one more thing in Daniel 7 that is key to understanding Revelation. By virtue of their union with Jesus, believers are called saints or holy ones. Legally, 
They're perfect, right? They're saints or holy ones. And those believers are given the ability to judge the nations for the first time in human history. You know, apart from prophetic glimpses or peaks into heaven, no one had ascended to heaven in the Old Testament. Jesus said no one has ascended to the Father except for the Son of Man who came down from heaven who also is in heaven. No one has ascended to the Father. And so... In the Old Testament, paradise was in the heart of the earth. Something brand new is happening. I'm going to start reading Daniel 7, verse 23, so that you can see that this is in the context in the time of the fourth beast, Rome. Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. But the court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever." Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. And I want you to notice the plural in verse 26. They shall take away his dominion. In verse 27, it says, The saints of the Most High will possess the dominions of the earth for King Jesus. Now, when does that court scene take place? It's a little bit later. The earlier one was in 30 A.D., but this comes after the time, times, and half a time of persecution. In other words, after the three and a half year, uh, years of tribulation. This means that the last days of Israel were pivotal uh, in terms of a reversal of history. Actual cities and tribes and nations began to be converted. Actual cities, tribes, and nations were possessed uh, by, by Christians. By the early 200s A.D., Tertullian told one pagan, We are but of yesterday, and yet we already fill your cities, islands, camps, your palace, senate, and forum. We have left to you only your temples. A Tertullian is basically saying, hey, Christians have taken over the empire. They were still being persecuted by the empire, but they, they were taking over. The saints were possessing city after city. And uh, Ethiopia had become Christian already, and Armenia. And Schaff says, In less than 300 years from the death of St. John, the whole population of the Roman Empire, which then represented the civilized world, was nominally Christianized. There was a lot, still a lot more work to be done, but there was great progress that had been made. So Jesus was given all authority to judge in 30 A.D., and by virtue of their union with Jesus, the saints begin to exercise judgments in that heavenly courtroom as well. And because they approached the subject with faith, they had phenomenal success. So back to Revelation 5. Daniel 7 explains why no one in heaven and earth was worthy to open the scroll. Okay, For any human to use the Bible to judge nations apart from Christ would mean we, our own judgment. We are not worthy. We are condemned by God's word. That's why Jesus said, judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. Now, we can come into agreement with Christ's judgment. We can bring God's word to bear, but we ourselves can only approach the scriptures and their judgments through Christ himself. 
uh, he meets the qualifications. So it's no wonder that in John's vision, it impacted him so emotionally that this scroll had not yet been opened. Without the manly Messiah of the Old Testament, planet Earth was doomed. Now keep in mind that John in this vision has been experiencing 30 AD as if for the first time. He's gone back in time, okay? So this whole vision is taking place in 30 AD, even though he lives later in 66 AD. Anyway, verse 4 says, And I began to really weep because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. All the prophecies about the new covenant kingdom show that it is a man who rules over planet earth, a man who defeats his enemies, a man who judges. And the trouble is, no man is qualified, with the exception of Jesus, obviously. So William Hendrickson points out that if no one had been able to take this book, as per Daniel 7, then there would be, quote, no protection for God's children in the hours of bitter trial, no judgments upon a persecuting world, no ultimate triumph for believers, no heaven and earth, no future inheritance. Someone had to triumph over sin, Satan, flesh, the world, uh, before believers could experience what the last verses of Daniel 7 say they would experience, and that someone is Jesus. And so this is a part of John's apologetic to unbelieving Jews. If you reject Jesus, you are lost in your sins. And one of the elders assures John that there really is a solution. Verse 5 says, so one of the elders says to me, stop weeping, look. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and its seven seals. And I want to spend a bit of time going through John's apologetic, because this is really the heart of the passage. This is the coolest part of this passage. Why Jesus and Jesus alone could be the Messiah. He perfectly fulfills every Old Testament prophecy. First of all, he must fulfill the lion passage of the Old Testament. Genesis 49, 9 through 11, likens the Messiah to a lion. Now, it's very cryptic language that it uses, but the Jews were quite familiar with it. There was no controversy about the fact that that passage was pointing forward to a future Messiah. So this is a great passage to turn to, and it's a passage that would have blown some of these um, first century Jews away. Six things in that passage about the Messiah that are significant. First, the Messiah would wear the title of Shiloh, related to peace. Second, he would arise out of the tribe of Judah. Third, he would be a lawgiver. Fourth, he'd be a descendant of kings of Judah. Fifth, he would eventually lead all peoples to obey him. And sixth, there would be a steady stream of rulers from Judah up until Shiloh came, but not afterwards. Not afterwards, okay? Now, why is it that Jesus alone could fulfill those prophecies? Three reasons. First of all, there is no tribe of Judah today. Any rabbi will tell you, all of the tribes are so intermixed, you would never be able to tell who's from Judah, who's from uh, other tribes. And yet the Messiah has to be able to be identified as coming from Judah. So the Messiah can't be coming in the future. He has to have come in the first century when Judah still was a distinct tribe. Second, there is no genealogy today of the kings of Israel that comes down to the present. So if a legitimate Messiah has to have a lineage from the kings of Judah, the Messiah cannot be future to us. Anything the Jews might claim to be a Messiah today is a counterfeit Messiah. He has to have a genealogy that links him to Judah's kings. 
And third, and this is especially embarrassing to Jewish uh, apologies, Henry Morris points out that the scepter departed from Judah in 70 AD. After 70 AD, the prophecy could not be fulfilled. The scepter that currently rules in Israel, you know, prime minister there, they can't show that they're from the tribe of Judah. They can't show any lineage to, to kings. So just that title, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, is a powerful apologetic in Jewish evangelism. It's something they cannot get around. The king has come. The lion has come. But secondly, if Messiah descends from the tribe of Judah, he's got to be a human. Angels cannot take that task. No, it was prophesied that a human would inherit this rule. So an angel can't do it, even if angels are perfect. The third qualification listed may seem a little bit odd. You may expect that Jesus would be called a descendant of David, because after all, all the Jews knew he was going to be a descendant of David. But that's too obvious for John. John appeals to one messianic title that would have been an extreme puzzler to the Jews of his day. Isaiah 11 says that the Messiah was to be the root of David. Now that word indicates that the future Messiah, get this, the future Messiah is the one who produced David. How is it possible for a Messiah who's going to come hundreds of years after David to produce David? The root produces the tree, not vice versa, right? So this speaks of pre-existence, but that word also indicates that the Messiah had humble beginnings. He's just a root. It's not what you would expect of a divine being. A root was unnoticed, it's hidden, it's not even beautiful. So the Messiah is not going to come with a big bang. Initially, uh, he would be unnoticed, even though Isaiah 11 says that this root would spread to cover the entire earth, the whole world. So there is both humility and divine orig origin that are implied. What candidate other than Jesus can meet those conditions? And then since Isaiah 11 is the only passage in the Old Testament that speaks of Messiah being a root of David, every one of the qualifiers in that passage would need to be fulfilled. Well, in that passage, the Messiah is not only called the root of David, he's called the branch of David. And this is something that, that is so puzzling to the, the, the Jewish exegetes. Um, He both originated David and was originated by David. That, that's the puzzle there. Okay, uh, In Jesus, it's perfectly fulfilled. As God, he's the originator of David. As man, David is the originator of Jesus. And who else but Jesus could fulfill Isaiah 11? Now, Isaiah 11 goes on to speak of Christ's baptism and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Anyway, when you read through that chapter, you realize this is such a perfect identifier of Jesus and they would have known about him in the first century and interestingly that passage indicates that the Messiah would establish his kingdom among all Gentile nations and only after the Gentiles are converted would Israel be converted now why is that so significant because this sticks in the craw of modern Jews as it did in first century Jews they taught that when Messiah comes Israel as a nation will recognize him and will embrace him. Israel did not recognize him. They rejected him. Ergo, Jesus could not be the true Messiah. You can see it all through modern 
uh, Jewish uh, literature, and yet here is a passage that explicitly says that the root of David is going to be rejected by the Jews for a long time. Over and over in the Old Testament, it says that the Messianic kingdom, there's going to be gradual growth of the kingdom among Gentile nations, but that Israel would continue to reject Jesus until the Gentiles were converted. At least a great majority of them were converted. I think technically uh, Israel could be probably converted at any time. But the Root of David passage is, I think, a marvelous post-millennial passage (laughs) that would have perfectly described what Jesus was doing in the first century. Uh, In Isaiah 11, it predicts that this Messiah would bring order out of disorder. Well, that implies he's going to come during a time of disorder and apostasy. It says that he would bring a new creation out of an old creation, would eventually redeem even the physical universe, but all of that would happen gradually. The, The Jews wanted a sudden kingdom just like the premillennialists do. A sudden kingdom, and Isaiah 11 says, no, no, the paradise will start spreading from a single root in dry ground. It didn't start with a paradise. No, it starts with a root in dry ground. So there's a lot that is packed into that title. John is correcting Jewish expectations and proving that no other candidate can take that scroll. Now, when uh, when verse Five goes on to say that this Messiah has prevailed to open the scroll and its seven seals. It's telling us that Jesus already won the battle in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. We're not looking forward to Jesus gaining the victory. He already gained the victory. We stand in that victory by faith, okay? We apply that victory by faith. There's a big difference psychologically and in reality, between thinking we're going to get victory versus Jesus won the victory already. Faith does not hope for victory. It stands in what the victory Jesus has already accomplished. So Jesus did everything needed to be able to take the scroll to start his mediatorial kingdom. He's fulfilled the Old Testament overcoming motifs. And because he overcame, he can enable us to overcome. Uh, By focusing on Jesus and who he is, we have encouragement for our work. Now, verse 6 goes on to give further Christology. It says, And I saw in the midst of the throne and of the four living uh, beings, and in the midst of the elders, a lamb standing as if slaughtered. Now, we already saw in our discussion of the cherubim that to be in the midst of the throne was to be a part of God's eternal governing of the universe, and yet Jesus is also said to be in that throne but he's also said to be in the midst of the elders. He alone could be both because he alone is the God-man. As the one who is in the midst of the throne, he is part and parcel of God's eternal providential governing of this universe, the eternal kingdom. But as one who is in the midst of the elders, he is a man who represents us better than any human elder could. And so those those, uh, phrases show deity and humanity. Verse 6 also presents Jesus as both sacrifice who died and the one who rose victorious from the dead and is standing, standing upright in verse 6. But the Greek shows the lasting impact that his sacrifice has. It's the perfect tense indicating a finished act. It's a once and for all act with an ongoing benefit. The benefits of his redemption are needed forever. Now, Beale and Carson 
show how the sacrificed lamb language is taken straight out of Isaiah 53. And Isaiah 53 has been used to convert many, many Jews to a saving knowledge of the Lord because I don't know how you could read that passage without being stone blind and not see Jesus. It's just so incredibly clear. Isaiah 53 says the Messiah would begin his kingdom by being rejected by the Jews, that's verses one through two, being rejected by the Gentiles, verses uh, two through four, uh, being rejected by God himself in verses 4 through 10. So he's rejected by all in God's plan so that he can redeem all. So the Messiah of Isaiah 53 starts his kingdom by being rejected just as Jesus is rejected, and it describes in vivid detail the torture, the plucking out of the beard, the crucifixion, the burial in a rich man's tomb, the resurrection, and as a result of his suffering, he justifies many. And of course, that chapter speaks of him as being God's righteous servant. So all of the righteous servant passages in Isaiah come to the fore as well. Actually, it's one big section in Isaiah. Um, and so that Isaiah section that deals with the servant of the Lord passages, that too has been a tremendous puzzle to many Jews because uh, they wonder how can, a, how can the Messiah be a suffering Messiah and also a, a Messiah who reigns in glory. And so a lot of Jews have said there's two Messiahs. Not all of them, but a lot of them have said there has to be two Messiahs. There's one Messiah who comes as a lion. There's the other Messiah who comes as a lamb, right? And um, yet when John is told, look at the lion, he looks at the lion and it's a lamb, right? The, the one and the same. Uh, they, they, they are together. And so this is a brilliant use of symbols by John. They're just packed with Old Testament Christological doctrine. And any Jew who was at all familiar with the Old Testament would have been struck between the eyes at how perfectly Jesus fulfills all prophecy. And for those of us who lack faith about the kingdom being present, uh, we just need to study those Old Testament passages and realize that um, those passages indicate that it's starting with nothing and going to something over a period of time by the gospel of Christ. In fact, they ought to turn you into a fiery post-millennialist G.I. Joe or a Navy SEAL or some kind of a special law. I mean, you read those passages, it stirs your blood. It makes you want to go out and do something for Christ. Why? Because there's hope. We know we're going to uh, advance his cause invincibly if we have faith in Christ's finished victory. Now, of course, the next image deals with that kingdom. What kind of kingdom does Jesus rule over? The Jews of Christ's day spoke of a kingdom of power that would force Gentiles to submit. They wanted to establish the kingdom by the sword. And most, not all, but most premillennialists see their future kingdom as one where Jesus forces Gentiles to submit. But take a look at verse 6. Verse 6 says that it is the Lamb who has seven horns. Okay, it's a lamb. That's very significant. Horns are the symbol of ruling. The number seven is the symbol of fullness. So the number seven refers to the fullness of his rule. You cannot divide up his rule and say, okay, well, maybe Jesus is ruling as a lamb right now, but there's coming a time when he's going to rule as a lion. No, the fullness of his rule is present, and both the lion and the lamb are present uh, right now. So this passage really does not allow for that. Now, if all of his rule is characterized by the seven horns of the lamb, that's significant. 
It means that unlike the dragon, whose horns represent the statist rule by force, Jesus rules by redemption. Jesus rules as a lamb. Jesus rules by saving men. Now, Reconstructionists are often accused of trying to bring in the kingdom via the civil government. That is such a false mischaracterization of Rushton. He has over and over again said that's not the way it's going to be. It is redemption that is applied at the grassroots level to the individual that eventually leavens the, the leaven of the kingdom, leavens the whole lump. And when you've got a society that's full of people who are Christians, well, obviously you're going to have Christians who are ruling in that Christian society, right? And Christian government is extremely limited government, contrary to the government of the beasts that are described in this book, which is big government, centralized government. So we'll get into all of that later. But it's a totally different kind of rule that this lamb brings. So always keep the picture of the lamb with seven horns in mind. Probably a better picture than the one I've got there. But some kind of a lamb with seven horns on his head. Because it's a kingdom by redemption, not a kingdom by force. Now, of course, if you reject the lamb, you're going to be torn apart by the lion, right? Because he is a lion as well. But the horns are not on the lion. The horns are on the lamb. Both images relate to his present rule. But the seven eyes of the lamb are said to be, quote, the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now remember we just said that the number seven refers to fullness, and so this symbolically represents the fullness of the Holy Spirit going out into all the earth. And this settles two raging doctrinal controversies. Well, they're not raging much anymore. They, they, I guess they still are. The first one... Uh, if you talk to Eastern Orthodox people, they're still pretty fiery about this. It's the Filioque Clause. And actually, I, I guess I don't have it up here on my seat. I've brought uh, an essay uh, by Bojidar Marinov that discusses this. It's a brilliant, brilliant essay. But in, in the Eastern Church, they said that the Holy Spirit does not proceed from the Son. He only proceeds from the Father. And in the Western creeds that we adopt, we have adopted, it says that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Now, I've dealt with this in a previous sermon, so I'm not going to get into it in, in depth here. But you can see that this passage clears up that whole, that whole controversy. Uh, it says that the Holy Spirit is represented by the eyes of Jesus, and the sevenfold Spirit goes out into all of the earth. He proceeds from Jesus, right, from the Lamb. So the West was right. And Bojidar Marinov, as I mentioned, shows the practical differences that this doctrine makes in all of life. In the East, you've got uh, much more of a centralism of government and dominion that is centralized. In the West, there tended to be decentralization and decentralized dominions. A doctrine makes a huge difference. And I would encourage you to read that article. It'll give you a foretaste of how many other doctrines impact the way that we think and the way that we live. Now, there is a second controversy that this settles. Premillennialists often insist that Christ's spiritual presence is not sufficient to make a Christian world. They say that he must come back physically first. They emphasize that. No, it's got to be physical. You say, well, Jesus said, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. No, 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 that's a spiritual presence. It's got to be physical. There's something about his physical body being here that's going to make that kingdom be able to be uh, accomplished. And I'll just give you some sample quotes from famous premillennialists. John Wolverd said, 
Therefore, the only solution to the turmoil among nations is the return of Jesus Christ in power and glory to the earth. According to him, Jesus didn't have the solution at his first coming. We have to wait for him to physically appear. Tommy Ice and Wayne House say that the only way that Christ could bring in the kingdom is by his powerful physical presence, as if his spiritual presence is not powerful. Uh, th though there is some power in the church today, they say, God has not given the church a proper dose of grace to Christianize the world. It won't happen, can't happen. Can't happen till after he physically comes. Um, Salem Kerbin said, without the hope of our Lord's return, what future do any of us have? Now, it's not just premillennialists. I can give you any number of quotations from amillennialists that say much the same thing. But how does Christ extend his redemptive kingdom in this passage? Does he do it by force? No. He extends his kingdom by the grace of the Holy Spirit. And how far does the Holy Spirit take Christ's redemptive kingdom? Into all the earth. There is no square inch of planet Earth that will be exempted from the reign of Christ and the redemption of Christ because there is no square inch of planet Earth where the Holy Spirit will not spread the work of the Lamb. Over and over again in this book, we see that the planet Earth will be a redeemed planet Earth. The Holy Spirit extends the work of the Lamb into all the Earth. Everywhere where the, this Lamb, the seven eyes, is looking, that's where the Holy Spirit's going and taking his redemption. That's the symbol, what it means. So this really is an amazing collage of Old Testament images. And once you catch the meaning of these descriptions of Christ, it makes perfect sense that the moment Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father and he takes that scroll in verse 7 out of the Father's hand, all the universe bursts into joyful worship. Okay? Finally, the kingdom has come. Finally, uh, things can move forward in making all things new. That was the precondition to the saints beginning to possess the kingdoms after 70 A.D. Now, I'm not going to get into the incredible worship that springs uh, from that act until next week, uh, but verse 7 shows Jesus boldly and actively receiving the scroll in verse 7. And he goes and takes it out of the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. Uh, Vic Reasoner's commentary summer, uh, sums up the significance of this by citing several commentaries. He says, since the description of the heavenly scene found in this chapter is based upon Daniel 7, 9 through 14, and since that passage describes the ascension of Christ, the unsealing of the scroll occurred when Christ was exalted to the right hand of the Father. Irenaeus He's a very early church father. Irenaeus wrote that the one who took the sealed scroll from the hand of God received power over all things from the same God who made all things by the word. Charles Daubuz, writing in 1720, understood the delivering of the book into the hands of Christ as an act of inauguration, of investiture into his regal power and authority as a mediatorial king. Wesley said, the book and its seals represent all power, both in heaven and earth, given to Christ. Christ has begun to exercise his sovereignty. So Jesus fulfills the language 
of the throne room and of the courtroom language in Daniel 7. And as such, he will advance Christianity to the ends of the earth. It's 1 Corinthians 15 words that he must remain at the right hand of the Father until all things are placed under his feet, subdued under his feet. So chapter 6 will show Jesus the God-man, the new universal king, joining in God's courtroom judgments that happened during his life here on earth. So there's a smooth transition of the God-man doing what he had only previously been doing as God. But the point is, for the first time in human history, man was exercising sovereignty over planet earth in both judgments and redemption. And Daniel 7 points out that if we are united to Christ, in the new covenant, we are, too, we are seated with him too. We've been restored to an authority that Old Testament saints could only dream about. The book will go on to indicate that this authority can only be wielded by faith, but it can be wielded just as Christ was given authority over the nations. Believers have been given authority over the nations. And I think it is critical that the church of Jesus Christ gain a restored vision of the authority that they have in Christ. Until they get their eschatology right, they're not going to have that faith. We must see the momentous transition that occurred in 30 A.D. as Jesus was invested with his kingdom. Now let me just close with three more quick applications. First of all, I would urge you to glory in Christ in all that you do. He's the focus of this chapter. He needs to be the focus of your dominion. Without him, you can do nothing of lasting significance. Second, realize that without the empowering of the Holy Spirit, you're, you're not going to achieve what Jesus died to make you achieve. Without the Spirit applying His redemption, you cannot achieve it. It is the Holy Spirit that perfects Christ's rule within you, and it is the Holy Spirit that seals all of the benefits of Christ's redemption to you. So daily, be filled with the Spirit. Third, ask God to give you the same perspective that he gave to John. When John saw a Christless world, it made him weep. When Paul saw a Christless Israel, it made him weep. It made him desire that they would have Christ. And the contrast between the weeping of verse 4 and the incredible joy of verses 8 through 14 is exactly the contrast that happens in our lives when we first get converted and redemption is applied to us. But we ought to desire that the world would enter into that joyful worship as well. So there's really an impetus to missions in this chapter. Let us be a people who share Christ's heart for a lost world and who experience the Holy Spirit's empowering to produce a redeemed world. Let's be a people who glory in advancing the kingdom of this lion, lamb, messiah. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word and the challenge that it gives to us, but we thank you as well that you have given to us the power, the grace that is needed to meet this challenge. Father, you've called us to an impossible task, to make Christian nations that obey your word in everything that they do. But we believe the Great Commission. We're not going to cast it aside as an impossible idealism. Uh, we believe you've called us to this and that you have prophesied that it will indeed happen. Help us to move planet Earth from Revelation chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 22 to be a part of this glorious endeavor. Stir up our blood, O oh Lord. Stir up our passion, our zeal, uh, our, our um, determination to advance the cause of Christ as your foot soldiers. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.